Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-338 of the Run Run Live podcast. In today's episode, we are going to have a chat with Sandra, the organic runner mom. I met her up at the Eastern States 20 and decided to have her on for a chat about some of the goings-on in the organic farming space that she habituates. It's a good chat. In section one, I will talk about how to roll your fitness into a B race when your A race goes sideways. In section two, I have another piece I wrote for one of my work blogs, work-related blogs, when they asked me, what advice to my 22-year-old self would I have? And ironically, I saw Sandra at the Boston Marathon. She tapped me on the shoulder and said hi as she was cruising past me late in the race. That wasn't hard to do at the pace I was going at that pace. So I'm tired. This time of year is super busy for me, as I'm sure it is for you as well. I have just rolled out of a seven-day stretch that included getting my ass kicked at the Boston Marathon, a quick trip to Atlanta, and then uh, pulling off the 25th annual Groton Road Race over the weekend. I had to drop my little one off at the crack of dawn at the airport in the morning, on Monday morning, and get back to my home office for three hours of conference call, starting at 7 a.m. with Europe. And my wife pulled a bit of a fast one on me by announcing Sunday night, after I was already well into my celebratory cups at the race wrap-up cookout, that I'd be taking my daughter to the airport at the crack of dawn. So, I've got this week to catch up on some things, and then I'm into a pretty crazy six weeks of travel, and it won't let up until the middle of June, if ever, so it's good to be needed. (laughs) Yes, as you have guessed, we had a tough day at Boston. It was a little warm for some of us, and for me as well, and there was a bit of a headwind, took its toll, but I went for it anyhow and ended up sprinting right into the wall with a classic textbook, Boston Bonk. Couldn't recover and ended up doing the death shuffle for a uh, 20 minute plus positive split. 
But as painful as it was, I was not terribly disappointed. I had a great training cycle. I respected the race. It just won. <laughs> this time it won, as it has done many times before. It's a tough, unforgiving race. And I will try to write up a full race report this week. We had awesome weather for Groton, for the Groton Road Race. We had a great year with no major crisis. Great for me to go out on top. It really is something when you see how organized everybody is and how we pull it off. You know, an event of that size with a dozen or so volunteers, basically, directors. We pull it off and we do a great job. So super proud of that. We got some new members this week for our Run Run Live members only feed where I produce some extra audio content. And last week, based on my member feedback, I started working on a series about the podcasts that I listen to. And I don't know why anyone would want to listen to that, but since they are members, they get to tell me what to do. I also worked with one of my virtual assistants to add an annual membership option, and that should be working now. I think it is because somebody picked one. Uh, you asked for an annual option, so I added it. That's the way I am. I'm doing this membership option so I don't have to bug you guys with commercials and sponsors and ads. So I'd like to welcome new members Dwayne and Cheryl and Bill. And for the Groton Road Race over the weekend, we set up. We work Friday night a little bit, and then we set up all day Saturday. And we have the party rental stuff delivered, and we set up the field and the fencing and all that stuff. And we pick up the water and the ice, and we do a lot of miscellaneous running around and setting stuff up. And we set up the gym and sort through all the shirts for registration and take all the deliveries and everything. And then Sunday morning is race day. And the races don't start till after 10 o'clock in the morning. It's a late race. So I host a 6 a.m. run of the course. And this way I can keep my streak going. I have a streak going all 25 years. This is a trick I learned from Dave McGilvery. So I actually register. I pay. Sometimes I'll even wear my number, and usually it's a half a dozen or so of the race directors who show up, and we walk over to the starting line, we say a few words, and we go run the course. And this weekend, it was beautiful, with the sun just coming up over the hills and the meadows of springtime Groton. It was stunning. My friend Brian and I, not that Brian, the other Brian, <laughs> we led the pack, and just had an easy run of the course and is so peaceful and serene in that crisp morning air. It was just beautiful. And then we changed up and we went to work and we pulled off the race. So I keep my time so it can be entered into the official results. And I stopped my watch at 49.36 for the 10K run. Now, here's the funny part. One of our Run Run Live members... Yeah, those members I was talking about, Dwayne, he came up from Pennsylvania to run the race and say hi. And I was checking the results online this morning to see if I was in the results yet, which I'm not, but I'll take care of that. And his time was posted, though. And guess what it was? 49.36. How about that? Karma. Huh? I am a blessed and lucky guy. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Run, 
Rolling your fitness forward to your B-race, living to fight another day. What do you do when you show up for the race that you have trained well for, and specifically for, and Mother Nature throws a spanner in the works? It's a hot day, or a windy day, or there's some other kind of emergency, and it prevents you from getting the best shot at the time you're gunning for. What do you do? Well, in the old days, I would just keep running a marathon every two weeks until I got my time. Uh, Twice in my life, I have raced three marathons in six weeks in order to take that existing fitness and qualify on that third race. But I'm not young anymore. (laughs) My advice to people who are seriously trying to qualify or, or make some goal is to schedule a backup race two to four weeks after your target race. So that's your B race after your A race. And this way, if you show up and the weather is wonky or there are volcanoes or poisonous stinging fly infestations, you can decide to shift your bet to the B race. Now You can either not race at all in that A race or go easy and use it as a long training run or run some portion of that race. You save yourself for another day. Maybe... You start the race and see how you feel at a certain point in the course. And if things look good, you can go for it. If they don't, you can pull out early. I could not handle the three marathons in six weeks anymore. I'd break something. I think a month to six weeks between tries is the right cycle for me now. I have the base, and six weeks will allow me to get some recovery, a couple of good weeks of build, and a couple of good weeks of active taper for my next my next effort. For my most recent race, I also went all out. I crashed hard. My legs will need a few weeks of TLC to recover enough for me to start a new training cycle. It's a different starting point than pulling out or running it easy. If you spend all your fitness, you need some time to save up some more. The hard thing about trying to race your best is it takes a lot out of you. You create a schedule where you are trying to time it just right to have peak fitness on race day. You're compressing that spring so it is perfectly ready to go for that specific race on that specific day. And when you get a bad weather day or something else happens, you have to reset that timing and see when you can peak again. With the marathon distance... If you are racing, it can take a lot out of you. You can't just turn around and run the next day. That's what's great about the distance, but also makes it a bit of a dice roll on race day. I've walked off courses at the half marathon mark when I didn't think I was having my best day simply to save my legs to try again in a couple weeks. And that messes with people's heads. They say, why wouldn't you just finish? Well, I knew I could finish, but that wasn't my goal. So these days, the timing and the cycle is off when you're trying to get your time for Boston. It used to be you would have any number of fast courses to choose from in October, and this was a great race cycle. You wouldn't have to start training seriously until July. It gave you plenty of time to recover from the spring racing season, and you would peak just as the weather was getting cool up here in New England. If you missed it, You could even roll forward to March and still qualify for a race in April. With the new qualification windows, you have to get your time in essentially before August 31st. It almost forces you to go for it at Boston. 
If you wait until October, you're out for another year. Now you're forced to train over the summer, or worse, find a race somewhere in the summer. And it's a cycle that feels foreign to me. What do you do in those intervening weeks to re-time your fitness for your next try? Well, it's a function of how hard you have raced, your ability to recover, and how much time you have. If you did not wreck yourself in the A race, you might be able to turn it around quickly and race again in two or three weeks. If this is the case, you should treat these two or three weeks as essentially an active taper week. Don't try to cram a lot of miles in, but just focus on short, faster work where you can keep the legs race-ready and fresh. Let's say your race got canceled, so instead you went out for a two-hour long run. You decide to try again in three weeks from the original race day. That first week, you'd do a build week with maybe one or two longish zone two runs, capped off with some sort of step-up run or pace run in the 10 to 13 mile range, and that would leave you two weeks till race time. For the final two weeks, you'd do a couple of short interval workouts, maybe 5 by 800 or 400s or 200s at your 5K pace with short recoveries. So you're really not stressing the legs so much as keeping them awake. And you make that last Sunday long run something in the 8 to 10 range with some pickups in it. On the other hand, if you went out and ran your race but got beat up, you probably need to work in a couple weeks of recovery. That's easy runs, light volume, stretching and cross training, and then layer on the week or two of build with a week or two of active taper, and you'll be good to go. Everyone is different, and you you may not require as much recovery, or you may require more. The space between your A race and your fallback race is essentially a mini training cycle of rest, build, and taper. So you have to figure out how much of each works for you. The advice I would have is to error on the low side. Running isn't like a test you can cram for. Don't load the few weeks between races up with extra volume and intensity thinking you're going to somehow catch up or get faster. You won't. You'll either get injured or you'll go into your B race with dead legs. If you have trained well for your A race, you will carry that fitness with you for a good month or so. You just have to maintain it and keep your legs fresh to use it again. So good luck on your B race. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Sandra, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? How are things in uh, in New Hampshire today? Uh, they're okay. The weather could be a little bit better. It's We've had some heavy rain overnight, and thankfully, though, the temperatures seem to be warming up, so it's okay. Yeah, we got... <laughs> Yeah, we got that too. So we're uh, we're transitioning into what we would call mud season yes. in New England. Right? Yes, we've been in mud season, I think, for a while. We feel it a little bit more up here in the in the rural area with lots of farms around. Yeah, you guys have more dirt roads. Yes. So you and I met at the Eastern States Twenty Miler, yeah. somewhere out around mile six or five or somewhere out there. Because I'm a chatty guy and <laughs> I'm always talking to people. And we were chatting uh, as we were pacing that race. And it's funny now because a lot of times in these races, it's hard to find anybody to talk to. Because right. everybody's got headphones in, right? Yes. And they'll they'll just look at you like you're a jerk if you try to talk to them. I actually never but, uh, I actually never wear headphones when I run. I'll wear them when I'm training, but not when I'm racing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just one more thing to distract me. I've done it before, 
And it's kind of cool when the music works, but just, yeah, too many things, too many moving pieces. I'd rather focus on the road right. and, uh, and what I'm doing. But uh, we struck up a conversation, and I discovered that you are the organic running mom. I am organic runner mom. Give us the 200 words uh, or less on what an organic running mom is. Well, essentially, I am a mom of two lively kids. They're ages five and seven. And I've always been very passionate about endurance sports. I was actually originally mostly just a rower. I rode all through high school and college. But after that, I discovered a passion for running when I ended up living in New Hampshire. We didn't really have an option for a rowing team, so I was looking for something new. So I jumped into running with trail running and then quickly became addicted to marathon running and everything that has to do with the sport of running. And then the organic part comes from the fact that my husband's family is, they, we own, well, actually I do now too, um, we own an organic egg farm here in northern New Hampshire, and it's an organic business that has continued to grow and to thrive. It's called Pete and Jerry's Organic Eggs. So something that I'd never imagined when I was growing up that I'd be involved in, and now I spend a lot of my time thinking about organic food and what that has to do with my running and how important that is also for my family. That's in a nutshell where where those words all come from, and that's how the title for my blog came about. Yeah. So you find that um, – who do you find that is dialing in and reading your stuff and, and interacting with you? What's the sort of demographic that you get? Well, I definitely have a lot of moms um, because I do I do some talking about nutritional issues. I'm actually also a certified holistic health coach, so I do talk a lot about food issues. And being a mom, it's something you think a lot about. You really become focused on what kinds of food you're putting into your kids' growing bodies. So. There are a lot of moms and I get a lot of people who are newly starting to run and who have a lot of questions about getting into their first marathon or their first half marathon, kinds of questions, what to wear, what do I wear when I go on these runs or what do I eat when I'm doing a certain kind of training run. And there's also a, a large readership too of men as well. So I think it's just a lot of people that have a high interest in running endurance sports. I also do triathlons as well. So kind of a mix. And I would say a lot of people who are kind of in their mid-20s to, I don't know, anybody who runs. So all ages. Yeah, so, so sort of the Venn diagram between sort of the uh, the healthy organic stuff and the endurance sports. Yes. That overlap. Yeah. So you're doing the triathlons. You do, do any mountain biking up there? There's good mountain biking up there. We have awesome mountain biking up here. I'm actually a little, I have to admit, I'm a little bit afraid of mountain biking. My husband thinks I'm crazy, so... I do have some hopes maybe this summer to give it a go. Um, my husband is, is an avid mountain biker and does fat biking throughout the winter and whatnot. So I have a bike. I just need to get on it and get up a little courage. But I do spend yeah. a lot of time road biking. So Yeah, well, that's that's a bad combination, actually, is fear and mountain biking, because <laughs> you can't have any fear while you're doing it, especially with the technical trails around where you live. That's right. Uh, it, that, that's off the rocks and roots and trees. You'll cease to exist if you have fear. That's right. <laughs> the, <laughs> what does organic even mean these days? Well, organic basically has to do with when you have organic food. I mean, for us, for example, we have chickens and 
we produced eggs. So our organic eggs, they're organic because of what the chickens are fed and how the chickens are raised. The chickens are given all organic grains, and that means they are all produced. The grains have no GMOs in them, so that's a big buzzword right now is the whole GMO thing. Genetically modified. That's right. That's right. And that's been a a big hot topic. And there have actually been a lot of huge kind of agribusinesses. A lot of the big corporations now are actually going to be starting to label their products as GMO free. But one thing that you should know is that if you're buying something that's organic, that it already is GMO free. So Right. Um, that's a good thing to know. And then our hens have no antibiotics. They don't ever get antibiotics and um, they're not given any kind of hormones. And the feed that they're given also is not produced with any kind of pesticides. So those are all important things because you really don't want those things to be going into your food. Yeah, I know there, there was a little bit of, I don't know if controversy is the right word. I guess it depends on who you are and where you sit. But Back in the, when organic first came out as a thing was what, in like the 90s, right? Or the 80s and 90s. Yeah, definitely. And the big agribusinesses kind of said, okay, we're going to set up uh, standards for organic. And some of those standards are kind of played in favor of the bigger agribusinesses, so to speak, right? Allowed them to sort of skirt around the edges of the rules. So what's going on with that stuff now? Um, There's definitely... I think, been a shift. Um, Our family business, we originally were a conventional egg farm that was started by my husband's grandfather after World War II. And then it was in um, kind of the mid-90s when my husband's, his parents decided to change things to organic and we became an all-organic business. But definitely there have been a lot of changes uh, with the organic standards. There's been a lot more tightening up with those things. I mean, we have certifiers that come in. It's like a routine thing and they come in and they check out your operations and, you know, everything has to be really thoroughly checked out. And then also when you're dealing with animals of any type, it has to do with how they're being raised. There are humane standards that go along with the organic production with animals too. So um, there are some changes that are coming out with those things as well in terms of what determines if something's cage-free and how much area the animals have to move around. Um, yeah. There are shifts in a positive direction, I think, because it's become a very honest business, which is so good. Is this, is this going to help sort of the family farm come back in New England? That's because it used to be, New England used to be all farms. Right, right. right. It just were, my house sits on an old chicken farm. Well, there you actually. go. You, you could start raising some chickens. You know, I used to have them when the kids were little. I had chickens. I had some some bantams, and they're they're hilarious oh, they as pets. Totally if hilarious. you have a yard, oh, they're they're, they're still yeah, they are. Uh, the only problem with having chickens is they are sort of genetically designed to be the bottom of the food chain. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah, they're hard to keep alive. They are, they are. <laughs> because they are food for everything. So yeah. yeah. One of the things that that we really hope to see is that. The changes with food, foods, our food supply in this nation is that there is a change towards bringing back family farms and supporting smaller farms to be um, producing our food so that we as people, you know more about where your food is coming from and how it's being produced. Our family business was a small family farm. We were a tiny little conventional egg farm. And one of the reasons why my husband's family ended up moving in the direction of the organic 
was to be able to survive because we were being put out of business by the giant factory farms. And it's become our mission as our company to work with small family farms. So we're, we are constantly looking for farmers to work with us. And we have all different ways that we can do that with people and help people to support their livelihood and continue to be farmers and to live the farming lifestyle. So eggs specifically, you know, have gone through a cycle in the public favor. Yes. Over the last 30 years that I've seen it where we had that original thing back in the 70s and 80s with the uh, cholesterol. Yes. And nobody was eating eggs for a while. And then we got into the protein thing and everybody was eating eggs. And so it sort of whipsaws back and forth on sort of these fad diety sort of things, right? Right. right. You're an endurance athlete. You're running Boston in a couple of weeks, which means you're pretty fast, you know. (laughs) I'd like to think so. (laughs) You're running with me, so you're not that fast. But uh, what's the relationship you found between the organic eggs and the organic food and your endurance sports? Well, as an athlete, I, I really think a lot about what I'm putting into my body. You definitely feel better when you eat good food. And with organic food, I know that what I'm eating, it's good for me because of the way that it's being raised or grown and um, also that it, it doesn't have pesticides or antibiotics or any of those terrible things in it. So that's something that I really look for. And also when I can't get organic or I I try to get as much organic food as possible, but we also look for a lot of local foods to support support local farmers. But just getting getting those good whole foods, I really like to eat a lot of whole foods, not a lot of processed foods, because the energy that you're going to get to fuel, fuel your body is going to, going to be a lot better when you're eating whole, nutritious foods. What better thing to eat than an egg? It's the perfect food. <laughs> <laughs> From the egg farmer, that's right? right? That's right. the perfect food. <laughs> I will uh, buy the organic eggs when I see them because there's so much difference between a factory egg yeah. and more naturally or locally grown egg. They're just a different color. Right. They're a different texture. They taste different. It's you know, and it makes perfect sense, right? Because what you're putting in is what you're getting That's out. Right. So, and they're generally more fresh. You know, they're fresher when you get them too. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, people here were wandering around Market Basket or one of the big supermarkets. The whole center of the store is all this packaged crap. But then around the outside now, most of them will have one or two rows of organic vegetables and maybe some organic products, one or two in each food case. Yep. Always at a premium. What do you tell people when they're out shopping and they only get so much money? What do they do? You definitely, it's a fine balance. I mean, you have to pick what are the foods that are the most important to you to have in your diet. And so if you're on a somewhat limited budget, I would kind of prioritize anything that you feel would be best for you to be getting that's organic. I would maybe save a little extra so that you can get those items. And you have to be really good about reading labels and looking for good deals and checking out the prices. And But it it is a balance and it is hard. I mean, I do when I shop, I do try to avoid those middle aisles. But when you are getting better foods for your body, your body is going to respond better and be healthier and feel better. And you'll have more energy. If you're eating a lot of heavily processed foods with high amounts of sugar, you're not going to be feeling as good. It's definitely, you have to kind of work at it and figure out 
what works for you when you go shopping. And there's so yeah. there's so many labels to read. There's so many different things. Well, I think it's tricky too because the big packaged food companies know that people value the health product. Right. And so they write the copy in such a way that it sounds like it's healthy right. on the labels and the pictures and the colors and stuff. But if you actually read the label, then you realize that it's the same thing in a different package. That's right. Well, and you know, one of the biggest traps currently with foods is the all natural foods. That doesn't really actually mean anything. Anybody can slap that term on their product and it doesn't really mean anything different about the food. You know, nobody's overseeing that. There are no guidelines for what that means. Yeah, I was on a plane this week and they uh, one of the things they offered me was the basket of food. And I looked in there and there was um, these fig bars, right. right? I go, cool, fig bars, right? Like all natural, whatever wrapping. And so I flipped over and read the label. And the first two ingredients are what? Sugar. Right. Right. So essentially, it's a, it's a tarted up fig noodle. Right. Right. But again, the, the messaging, that's not the messaging. Right. right. So it's a lot of it seems to be just to assuage people's um, consciences as they eat the wrong stuff. Right. Right. Definitely. Put a better label on it so I don't feel bad that's right. while I'm doing it. But yeah, so it's really hard. So what would be something simple that people can do? What do they look for? Well, I mean, you can look for different things. Like you can look for the organic label. Obviously, it really depends on what's important to you. If you're really into organic foods, you want to look for that USDA organic symbol that's right on the package. It's very clear and easy to find. Or you might be somebody that really, your high interest, you really care about how the animals are being treated. So you want to look for things like certified humane and how the foods are being produced. And I, I would really look closely if a package says all natural on it, I would really flip it over and maybe start checking out the ingredient list. For me, I always tell people it's really important to get a lot of fruits and vegetables, and those are important to have in your diet, but you don't necessarily need to get fruits that are fresh. You can buy frozen. Uh, studies have shown that those are actually good and they don't lose a lot of the nutritional value. That's a way to get some of those things into your diet. The frozen aisle is a good place to go. And you can find lots of choices for organic. Yeah. So. so we're coming into spring now, which is one of my favorite times of year because you get to start eating some stuff right out of the ground. And that's a good place to go is look locally at the little garden stands and in your own garden. Right. Do you have a garden up there? Do you we do. grow your own we, stuff? We yeah. do. We try. <laughs> so every year it's a kind of a new experiment, but I do an organic vegetable garden and we we use high mowing organic seeds they're all heirloom seeds they're great it's from a little vermont company it's great if you do a garden i would highly recommend checking them out oh yeah um, what's the company high mowing seeds it's great and um they have a lot of heirloom seeds so you can get really unique varieties of carrots and things you can grow the cosmic purple carrots and all kinds of oh, cool yeah. stuff and doing having the vegetable garden is great my kids absolutely love planting the vegetable garden and then eating the vegetables straight out of the garden, which I think what better way to teach your kids about where food comes from than growing it in the ground if you can do that. And even if you're somewhere where you don't have a lot of space, you can still um, set up some little container gardens and pick some of the things that you really like to always have on hand for snacking like cucumbers or tomatoes and just get a little garden growing. Yeah, the easy stuff is the herbs. So yeah. you can throw in some some basil and always have fresh basil and rosemary. That stuff's pretty bulletproof. That's right. Well, uh, or parsley. That's right. 
Or you can have uh, yeah. grow zucchini. It's pretty easy. Have a vegetable garden overflowing with zucchini too much that you won't even know what to do with it. <laughs> so. yeah, that's right. Then you have to your neighbors start hiding from you because <laughs> you're great. handing out zucchini and summer squash. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I'm getting ready for that time of year. So what are what are some of the things you know? You work all the time. You're racing. You're raising kids. One of the things that that women in particular struggle with nutritionally is energy level. Yes. Right. And so how do you eat for energy level? Ah, it's always a challenge. <laughs> I'm somebody I have a generally have a fast metabolism too. So when my training's really at its peak, I really struggle with that a lot. I really try to balance it out. I like to start my day actually with a good boost of protein. Obviously one of the things would be some eggs. Another <laughs> way though, organic Greek yogurt. I'm running for Team Stonyfield at the Boston Marathon, so I've been having plenty of yogurt to enjoy in the mornings, good source of protein, but then I also try to get some really complex carbohydrates. I like to have some good like steel-cut oats, kind of yep. heavy-duty, stick-to-your-ribs kind of oatmeal in the morning, or some really hearty pancakes are another good way to fill yourself up. I'm not one to shy away from eating, so. <laughs> yeah, I just counted the calories there. We're up to about 2,500, oh, yeah. so you must be doing some good workouts. <laughs> so, and then for lunch, I like to eat egg salad or tuna fish is another good source of protein. And then we do eat a lot of lean protein for dinner time, and we also like to eat a lot of fish as well. And hopefully there's some uh, green leafy vegetables. Yes, yeah, oh, plenty of green leafy vegetables. And thankfully, my kids actually love things like broccoli and peas. And we always have tons of vegetables. I like to eat kale, a nice Swiss chard, a rainbow chard, spinach, all those things. So you're in about, what, 10 days? You're walking into, what, your third Boston Marathon? Be, yep, it will be my third Boston Marathon. And uh, you're a qualified runner? This year, I'm not actually a qualified runner. I actually got invited to run with Team Stonyfield. So for Stonyfield Yogurt, I was invited along with another blogger, Sarah from Run Far Girl. And then there's a woman from Run Like a Mother is also running. And um, then they have some employees who are running as well. So this year, I'm doing it a little bit differently. I've been blogging for them, actually, throughout my training cycle, um, sharing about my training, but also writing some kind of nutritionally geared posts as well. Yeah. Um, talking about some of the products that they have, but also things like how to fuel a marathoner. So it's been kind of fun to be a part of a, a team because, you know, running is so individual. So it's nice to have some other people that I can talk to about the training and how's it going and so you've run before qualified, though, right? I have, yes. Yeah. I um I qualified, first Boston I qualified for was the 2013 Boston Marathon. And then I actually ran a qualifying time at that race. Yeah, so you beat them in. I did. I finished about 10 minutes before everything happened at the finish line. Yeah. And I wasn't too far away. I really had just gotten through the medals area and gotten a little snack from the volunteers and was at the buses getting my clothes and that's when everything happened yeah it was weird huh uh, yeah so you came back the following year i did and did the the victory run i did in and, 2014 yes and for me it was kind of like a recovery run i i actually had a lot of ptsd symptoms from 2013 I wasn't able to get out of the race area for about three hours because my husband was having a hard time getting to me because of everything that went on. 
everything was blocked off. We couldn't communicate, et cetera, et cetera. So it was really stressful. So coming back to run in 2014, I had qualified and I really wanted to run and to be able to just do it and finish the race and to show myself that I could do it again and get through that. It was really emotional. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can see it. I can see it in your uh, face right now. <laughs> I, I I had sort of similar feelings. What I ended up doing was running a marathon a month from that point through the next one. Yeah. Just sort of a Forrest Gump thing. Yes. Just needed to run. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think of the race? What do you get any, uh, get any, any advice for people out there? Got to run Boston? Well, having run it two times before, um, when I ran in 2013, I actually had a really incredible race experience. I ran for me, what felt like a perfect race, I ran pretty much even splits through the race, and I was able to negative split in the very end of the race and almost matched my PR time. So that was great. And then I came back in 2014, and with it being so emotional, and I just couldn't get all of that out of my head. I just wasn't totally there feeling the race course. And, um, you know, my adrenaline was going crazy. So I went out way too fast, which is a really, yeah. really, really bad move if you're running a marathon in general. And in Boston, it's so easy to get tricked into that because of the little downhill stuff that goes on at the start. So I went out too fast and you know what happens after that. <laughs> I do. I have personal experience yes, of that. Yes. Then it became a pretty much a struggle and just kind of holding on for dear life, trying to get myself to the end of the race without completely falling apart. So this is the tiebreaker this, this year, right? The tiebreaker. I plan not to run like that again. I'm feeling really good going into Boston this year. I mean, as you know, I ran along with you for a fair amount of the Eastern States 20 miler, which was awesome. I really appreciated having a, a runner right along who was kind of Yes. Yeah, so I, I had some trouble at the end of that race. Actually, yeah, I just remembered that, right? I caught you on the bridge yes. at the end because yes. I had stopped for an ill-timed potty break yes. and had to make up two minutes. So I caught you on the bridge, which is about a mile and a half yep. to a mile and three quarters from the finish line. And you were like limping. Oh, yeah. You caught me. And, about and I passed you and you said, what did you say? You said I... I pulled my calf, my calf or something? Well, I'd been having trouble with my calf leading into the race, but it had felt fine for the, the entire race up until mile about 18 and a half. And then my, my calf just completely cramped up. I don't know. I took a funny step or something. Yeah. And I think you yeah. caught back up to me about a minute after that had happened. So. And I said something awful like suck it up. Yeah, pretty much. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It actually made me really grit my teeth and just kind of push through it. I was like, you know what? I'm so close to the end. I've just got to get it done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's probably what I said is you got a mile left. Just suck it up. Go. <laughs> Ignore it. I was trying right? to. It was kind of painful, but I've worked through yeah. it, and thankfully. <laughs> well, that's my theory on talking to people in races, right? So the first third, it's all conversational. Yes. Se second third is a little motivational. But the final third, any place that last bit, you just got to yell at that's people. Right. That's right. That's right. That's what they need. They just need to be yelled that's at. That's right. And you know what? I appreciate that because having been a rower, it was kind of when you're in the last 500 meters of your race and your coxswain is yelling at you. And it's kind of it was kind of like that. So I was like, all right, I'm going to tough it out. I'm just going to get it done. I appreciate it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. I'll let you get back to your family and your farm. Sure. And uh, we'll catch up later. All right. Great. And I look forward to seeing you in Boston. Yeah, you probably. Well, actually, what's your number? Um. Well, my I'm feeling a little superstitious. It's three zero six six six. 
<laughs> I didn't know anybody had a number bigger than mine. Well, I'm running, I'm running because I'm not a qualified runner. I'm running in a later wave. Well, yeah, yeah, me too. But you're further back than I am. Yes. <laughs> you're one person I don't have to pass. What's your number? So I'll like two eight seven six six. Okay. Well, maybe I'll catch so, you. Yeah, we're in the same way. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, I was actually thinking about just waiting and letting everybody go. Yeah, that sounds like a good Giving everybody a 10-minute head start the whole race, but I don't know. I'll just go out. It, where we are, you ran with qualified bibs before, yeah. which Boston is great, right? It's got the reverse funnel. It's got that downhill, so you get on pace right away. Right. And that's part of why people overrun that first bit is because they're not used to getting on pace so fast. That's right. In a big marathon. But where we are, you've got fourteen to 16,000 people before you get to where you're supposed to be slotted right at the pace we're running so we'll be so, we'll be wading through so those first two or three miles are going to be like 10 minute miles so you won't have to worry about going out too fast that'll be yeah. good so i look forward then to seeing you at the finish line yep i'm gonna rock it this year all right all right we'll see you thanks all right bye-bye. bye-bye sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know Okay, like I said, my friends, this is my address to my 22-year-old self. And this topic is difficult in many ways. First, it seems to ask for something definitive, some overarching summary or distillation of a lifetime's learnings. I think this sets the mark too high. That's an impossible set of advice to distill. Even if we could distill that advice it would not be applicable or useful to anyone today because it would only relate to that 22-year-old at that place in that time. Second, who are we, even at this advanced age, to presume we know more than a 22-year-old? Of course, we know more, but doesn't that same lifetime of collected knowledge color our opinions and decision-making? Who's to say it isn't we that would not benefit more from the advice of a 22-year-old? And finally, I wonder if it would be right to deny my 22-year-old self the pleasure, pain, and fulfillment of searching and finding out for himself. How much of what I hold dear and valuable was colored by the very striving to attain it? All these things cannot be uncoupled. For me, that's over 30 years ago. That was a different place and a different time. From this distance in the future, we cannot even attempt to recreate that frame of reference. It was the time of Ronald Reagan and the Cold War, a time when China and India were backwaters and Japan was still ascendant. The business context was vastly different. It was a time of high inflation and an economy that had not yet been globalized. Most people looked to join an established company and stayed close to where they were born. The corporate jobs of the day were nurturing and nine to five, with pensions and paid leaves and full family health insurance for 28 bucks a month. That's all changed. That context would be downright alien to a 22-year-old today. The choices I made in that context probably only makes sense in that context. You can't compare then and there to here and now. At 22, I was married, employed full-time, and owned a house. How do I explain that context to a generation of millennials? By 24, I was traveling Asia as a consultant. 
What would that translate to today? Would I be an internet individual contributor of some sort? Maybe there is a way, if we don't shoot so high, if we don't try to break the temporal rules, what stands out, independent of the current frame of reference? Is there advice that is timeless? Maybe there is. I was reading Seneca this morning, and ironically, his letters to Lucilius were exactly that, advice to the millennial of his time. Many of Seneca's thoughts would ring true, even mundane to modern ears. Maybe the good sense of civilized humans is timeless. Be true to yourself. Strive to lead a virtuous life. Sounds like folksy advice to the modern ear, but was common 2,500 years ago. So here are a few things I might share. You're forced to share something just because they're top of mind for me. One, first, I would advise that 22-year-old to think long and hard about how they define success. What is winning? How will they know when they have won? That is a dangerous age where you really don't know what you want to do with your life. You have no anchor and no compass, and you're susceptible to just going along. It's tricky at this stage because your directional compass may just be forming, but it's better to assume a choice, choose a direction, and move through action you'll find your way along the way. People will tell you to set goals, but before you set goals, you need to understand your own values and your own strengths. Your definition of success will change over time. Assess your directional compass early and often. Take that action and don't be afraid to learn as you go. You may find your way along the way. Number two, second, be aware of all the areas of your life. Your life is, by definition, a portfolio, and you have to define or at least understand that portfolio. And most people come to realize and separate out the different areas of their life, such as work and career, relationship and family, spirituality, physical health, service, And I found a great quote here by Tony Robbins that addresses this concept. He says, quote, We all know there are many kinds of wealth, emotional wealth, relationship wealth, intellectual wealth, physical wealth in the form of energy, strength, and vitality, and, of course, spiritual wealth, the sense that our life has a deeper meaning, a higher calling beyond ourselves. And one of the biggest mistakes we humans make is when we focus on mastering one form of wealth at the expense of all the rest, end quote. It's worth thinking about how you want to allocate your time and energy across that portfolio. This is what people mean when they talk about life balance. There is no right answer, and it will change over time, but it's worth investing some early thought in. A useful metaphor is to think of these life areas as gardens. How you tend to them will determine how they thrive. Number three, practice self-awareness. And I say practice as opposed to learn or achieve because it's not something that you will ever really master. It's an ongoing act of practice. Carved on the temple at Delphi, it says, Know thyself. Before you can tend to others or be of service in this world, you have to understand yourself 
at the component level and be comfortable in your own skin. Number four, say yes to hard things and say yes to important things. In general, at the age of 22, you should be saying yes to almost every opportunity as long as it aligns with your values. This will shift over time as you find those things that are important to you. And then you can focus on saying yes to those things that are important, personally important. And number five, think bigger. We consistently underappreciate what we are capable of. Everyone you know has doubts. Most of them feel like pretenders, like fakes, like someone made a mistake. And the day is coming when the world will show up to take it all back, when they will be found out. Everyone has this self-doubt. Ignore it. You can universally do more than you think you can. You are universally more than you think you are. So start early in life, set bigger, scarier goals, and take bigger risks. Number six, be patient. Have grit. It's a curse of the young that they want instant gratification. If you want to find the really important things, you have to hang in there when it gets hard. We're not advocating that you work for lost causes or against your own values. We're simply saying that there is virtue and effectiveness in hard work and persistence. Number seven, get out. Get out of your own head. Get out of your office. Get out of your town. Get out of your country. Get out of your comfortable group of friends and have adventures. Meet people. Do things. See the world. Listen. Learn. Absorb. You'll be glad you did. Number eight, add value. Be a good citizen. Give more than you take. Many people will complain that the young don't respect what they have or take everything for granted. And I'm not sure if that's true or just the perspective of an older generation. Either way, it's important to realize that the quickest way to gain value in this world is to selflessly give value. Don't be a jerk. It's not about you. You're just one of 7.4 billion souls and counting in this neighborhood, and none of them owe you anything. Number nine, establish the habits that support your life. You will find that once you know what you want and what your purpose is in this world, that you will need some structure to pull it all off. What are the daily routines that you need to create and live by? Is it reading, writing, exercise, or some other sort of practice that will help you cultivate your gardens? And finally, number 10, think broadly, but execute narrowly. We have a tendency to specialize in our careers and lives. We get forced down narrower and narrower paths until our skills and knowledge are one-dimensional. And this may be good for the current context of your life, but it's a risky proposition in the long run. Allowing yourself to be herded into specificity of vocation makes it hard for you to think out of the box and innovate. At the same time, that specificity is required when you know which way you are headed. When you need a brain surgeon, you don't want them to send a philosopher. This is the dimensional balance you have to learn how to strike, and it's not easy. Think broadly, but execute narrowly. So in summary, so in summary, I probably wouldn't try to give advice to my 22-year-old self. I'd give him a hug and try to be a good listener, 
and then I'd tell him to go out and grab the wolf of life by the ears and hold on. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. That's it, friends, members. We have made it to the end of yet another fully certified organic Run Run Live podcast. Thanks for being along for the ride. Thanks for being a friend. Next week, we'll chat with John Mangan. Could be a cousin of mine. He's the Irish ultra runner who ran around the world. Took him four years, and he's now walking around the world. Interesting dude. Interesting conversation. I had issued a public service announcement on the feed about the Run Run Live podcast feed not working. I wasn't getting updates on my Podcruncher app on my iPhone, so I called Libsyn and they said everything was cool, but did you know you have two instances of Run Run Live on iTunes? Yes, I know. The second one is the older feed that goes through FeedBurner that I've been telling people to switch off for over a year now. I could tell you again, but if you're hearing my voice, you figured it out. I went in and deleted that feed and permanently redirected it, which actually sounds a bit painful. But the duh moment for me was when I realized that I was pointing my own Podcruncher app to the wrong feed in iTunes. Duh! So we fixed that up. You can get the show from iTunes, from Libsyn feed directly, or just download the files from my website. All roads lead to Run Run Live, except FeedBurner. That turns in on itself like a snake eating its tail. So with the marathon over and the road race done, what now? What am I going to focus on? I'm thinking about running Vermont City uh, on Memorial Day, May 30th. I hate to let my fitness go to waste, and I felt really strong going into Boston, and I think I have a decent performance in me. I just need <laughs> need to find the right venue. So I've been at this for a long time, and I think I've, I've found some balance, but the trade-off is that I'm not as maniacally focused on my running goals anymore. I just want to feel that joy we get out on those crisp, cool mornings with the sun peeking over the green hills and the bird chirping. You know... The peaceful epiphany stuff that I love out in the trails, thinking about stuff and things, stuff and things. That's 10 years, or maybe 11. I don't really know that I was the race director for the Groton Road Race. That's close to 20,000 runners of all ages I've helped give an opportunity to get over our courses and across our finish lines. To put that in perspective, that's about how many men Hannibal had when he crossed the Alps to conquer Rome. But he also had 40 war elephants. We didn't have any elephants. But still, that's a generation of runners that I had some small impact on. And that's pretty cool, and I'm a grateful guy. We had all 25 t-shirts strung up across registration in the gym, and that is impressive. Now you're talking two to three generations of local runners we've touched. And we're all very, very fortunate. And many times we look at these things and we fret over what we could have done. We wring our hands over the opportunities lost. We beat ourselves up because we didn't make some goal or achieve some thing to make our mark higher. We are a chronically unsatisfied bunch. It's really all in the value of the action taken, whatever that action was, the movement 
that starts a person. Because each movement has the opportunity to take hold and create compound movement, both both physically and metaphysically. That snowball effect is how our small actions can win the world in the balance. It's the butterfly's wing beat each time we move. So keep moving, my friends, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.